You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Encouraging news about Android apps, CloudBleed, and Slack's swift bug patching. Amazon finds a typo at the root of Wednesday's internet outages. Symantec opens a venture arm. Yahoo breach postmortems continue. Decryption tools for Dharma ransomware are out. Prospects look dim again for Vossener. China calls for the demilitarization of cyberspace. My discussion with Melanie Gluck from MasterCard on the behind-the-scenes security systems that protect credit cards. And the security sector bids farewell to Howard Schmidt, leader, advisor, and mentor. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Friday, March 3, 2017. There's some welcome good news about vulnerabilities and risk mitigation today. First, Google has removed 132 Android apps from the Play Store. The bad apps contain hidden iframes that link to malicious domains, and while it's good they've now been purged, it seems those apps weren't in much position to do damage anyway. Poland's CERT had sinkholed the malicious domains back in 2013. So bravo Google, but bravissimo CERT Polska. The cloud bleed bullet also seems to have been dodged, despite the initial angst with which news of the bug was received. Cloudflare says after investigation that the vulnerability was triggered 1.2 million times, but that they found no evidence of malicious exploitation. Cloudbleed had the potential to do a great deal of damage, so this is welcome news. Cloudflare is taking steps to check its code. The company has engaged Veracode to perform a third-party audit of Cloudflare's software. Cloudflare's investigation was conducted over 12 days and concluded that there's no evidence that passwords, pay card information, or other sensitive data was compromised, as had been widely feared. Industry reaction to Cloudflare's report seems mixed but generally positive and relieved, and so we're content to call this one a dodged bullet. And Slack is getting unmixed good reviews for their swift patching of a vulnerability, another potentially serious one, that exposed user tokens to compromise. They responded to the report in about half an hour and had a fix-out in five hours. A Detectify researcher reported the vulnerability under Slack's bug bounty and has received $3,000 for his work. Slack credits the bug bounty program with helping to keep its business collaboration tools safe and secure. Had Slack not closed the vulnerability so quickly, a great deal of sensitive and casual chat could have been compromised. And in electronic business communication, remember, the casual is always the sensitive. If you don't believe us, 
ask Sony. Amazon has identified the cause of the S3 server outage that rendered large swaths of the Internet unavailable Wednesday. It turns out to have been a command entry error during debugging. An operator, whom Amazon takes care to identify as an authorized operator, this was no hack by either an inside or outside threat, intended to remove some capacity temporarily, which is a routine practice. Unfortunately, a typo caused the command to remove far too much capacity, as so many users in North America saw to their chagrin. Amazon is working on procedures to prevent a recurrence. In industry news, Symantec has opened a venture arm. It's been given the helpfully obvious name Symantec Ventures, and is expected to serve as a kind of M&A on-ramp for its parent company. Yahoo's exit by sell-off to Verizon is concluding with whimpers as opposed to what could have been pleasing bangs. The Yahoo board's investigation of the company's breaches is finding fault and imposing costs on executives. In a gesture of responsibility, CEO Mayer has asked the board that her bonuses be distributed among employees. Those bonuses are thought to be worth about $16 million in cash and equity grants, which, curiously, is about what Yahoo believes it's spent so far in legal fees and the cost of investigation. Returning to good news, if you were among those afflicted by the Dharma strain of ransomware, ESED and Kaspersky have verified that decryption tools posted by independent researchers are in fact good. You can find those tools and other helpful material at nomoransom.org. The controversial Vossener cyber arms control regime's future looks shaky. Many in the security industry have been concerned that it would criminalize innocent, indeed essential, vulnerability research and inhibit beneficial trade in legitimate security products. The current U.S. administration is thought to be cool at best toward Vossner, but in fairness, its predecessor was also pretty double-minded on the accord itself, having put forward and then revoked implementation plans. China warns of the dangers of cyber conflict. The Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs piously notes the interconnection of interests we see in cyberspace, and expresses hope that nations will be led by enlightened self-interest to forego the grand illusions of cyber-military supremacy and victory in cyber-conflict, concentrating instead on administering this new global commons for the common good. Perhaps the People's Republic will convene an international conference devoted to ways of building confidence and making cyber-war unthinkable. Perhaps those new artificial islands in the South China Sea could provide a venue for such negotiation. Finally, we end today on a serious note as we mark the passing of industry leader Howard Schmidt, who died this week at his home. Schmidt had not only been a CSO at Microsoft and a CISO at eBay, but he also served as an advisor to both President George W. Bush and President Barack Obama. He led industry groups, wrote influential works on cybersecurity, and perhaps most important of all, served as a thoughtful, loyal mentor to a generation of security professionals. Our condolences to his family and friends as the industry remembers a life well lived. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. 
Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Joining me once again is Emily Wilson. She's the Director of Analysis for Terbium Labs. Uh, Emily, welcome back. Tax season is looming large ahead of us here, uh, so- sooner sooner than later. Um, and in terms of the dark web, that means that certain types of data start showing up. Yeah, definitely. And glad to be back. It, it is definitely tax season. I don't know about you, but I've been uh, trying to find a few receipts. <laughs> So, yeah, no, some uh, some information does become more popular around tax season. You know, certain things people aren't really trying to buy W-2s the other part of the year. Mm. Um, This is now definitely when the marketing is is more interesting. In addition to the W-2s that go up for sale, though, some of the data that's around the rest of the year is also really useful. You know, we see W-2s. I know of at least one vendor who's selling uh, EINs, these employer identification numbers. Mm -hmm. You think about the uh, the state driver's license databases that are up for sale. That kind of information is definitely helpful. Um, uh. But the, the things that I find interesting are there are kind of children's social security numbers up for sale on some of these markets. And when you think about what you're going to use that for, I mean, really, you're going to claim dependence, right? So somebody else may be claiming your kids. Now, now, what's the what's the relative value of this sort of data compared to something like a like a credit card number? Um, I think it depends on how much work you're willing to put into it. A credit card number is going to be a little bit easier to process. I think the uh, labor intensiveness of pulling off tax fraud, uh, you need to uh, place your bets pretty carefully. And we've certainly seen, you know, the IRS has said over and over and over again uh, that um, this is a problem. People, you know, stealing W-2s is a problem. Uh, Filing uh, fraudulent claims is a problem. But it it seems like the IRS sort of has been waffles back and forth sometimes about uh, how secure the system is or not. Yeah, I mean, I think the IRS is facing its own issues, having its own system secure to say nothing of what they're going to do when people are using stolen or fraudulent data uh, on their returns, right? You know, last year was not a very good year for the IRS in terms of keeping their own system safe. So has, has this kind of fraud, you know, reached the point where it's the type of thing that you can buy as a service yet? Or is it still, uh, you're pretty much on your own, you know, rolling your own when it comes to, uh, to this kind of fraud? 
That's a, that's a good question. Uh, I personally haven't seen any vendors offering up uh, kind of fraudulent tax returns as uh, as part of a dark web service, but I don't know. Ask your uh, ask your accountant if they accept Bitcoin. <laughs> All right, Emily Wilson, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Melanie Gluck. She's a vice president at MasterCard, responsible for EMV and contactless technology in North America. We began our conversation with the credit card industry's move to chip and pin cards, or EMVs. The goal behind driving chip into the market or EMV is another name for for chip cards, is to actually do basically an upgrade of the payment system and start to deliver dynamic, different information with every transaction. So where the magnetic stripe that we're also used to swiping, when that is issued, it's issued and it's static and it doesn't change. So it's kind of like the old uh, record albums, whether it's a 6 or 12 inch or whatever. Those things got... Uh, programmed, and you bought one, and it was the same song over and over, never changed. The MagStripe card was very much the same way. The same information is on that stripe. There's a real opportunity to combat counterfeit fraud by making each transaction unique, and MagStripe cards can't do that. A chip card, however, has a piece of hardware on it, which is actually a microprocessing chip. When you layer that with payment software, you then have the ability to actually make each transaction unique by delivering, for layman's terms, dynamic data, or more accurately, a digital certificate or cryptogram with every transaction. Um, there are about, uh, about 2.7 million locations that are chip active today, which represents about 40% uh, of merchants. Uh, and that number will continue to grow nicely throughout 2017 and, and beyond. Can you take us behind the scenes of, of some of the things that go on to protect our credit cards? I, I know, for example, you know, uh, every now and then you'll, you'll get a call from, from your credit card company that says, um, hey, we just got an alert that, uh, you know, you, you, were, you were trying to buy something in, in Yugoslavia, and uh, we don't actually think you're there. It's a, it's a great question, and what you're speaking to or asking about really talks about the multiple layers of approaches and tools that can be used to combat fraud and do risk management in the financial industries. 
So the card and this chip is definitely an important piece of fraud protection, but there are, are very sophisticated algorithms and monitoring that banks and indeed merchants and acquirers do throughout the ecosystem to pay a lot of attention to what trends they see. Sometimes it's about you and your spending patterns. Sometimes it's about other broader trends. Are we seeing a lot of small transactions? Are we seeing a lot of, um, I'll, I'll make things up, green transactions or whatever have you that they stay very attuned to and pay a lot of attention and build history so they can do modeling and get very nuanced in terms of recognizing when there are possibly troublesome transactions happening. When we started talking about those chip cards, I described them as a piece of hardware with some payment software sitting on, on top of them. And those the software and the hardware interact together, allowing the uh, generation of the data for the payment transaction, as well as this digital certificate, this dynamic information. One of the really important ideas in that is that if you have software sitting on a piece of hardware, it happens to be on a chip card today, but you can start to really envision how, well, that piece of hardware doesn't necessarily need to be on that chip card. Perhaps it can be on something else. So when MasterCard looked at rolling EMV out or chip cards out into the U.S., it was very important to us to think about not just the plastic card, but the digital environment. What's going to happen with your smartphone? What's going to happen with your computer or your tablet or your fitness band or your potentially jewelry? There are many other ways of doing payments that involve other kinds of, I'm going to do sort of air quotes, devices. People didn't used to think of rings as possibly payment technology, but we've actually been able to leverage that software on the chip and put it into other things that started most prevalently with smartphones. As you look at the variety of mobile wallets that are available from MasterPass, that is MasterCard's mobile wallet to Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, Android Pay, Microsoft Wallet, and others, um, onto moving away from the smartphone, but to a fitness band or a piece of jewelry that allows you to tap your finger as you go through a turnstile, for instance, and not pull out either a card or a mobile phone. But again, you come back to needing that software and that chip and placing them in something. And that's part of the picture. The other part of the picture is really thinking about what is the payment information that is on that device or on that chip? Can we actually go a step further and protect the card number by using a substitute value or what we call a token? So tokenization is something you'll hear a lot about in the payments ecosystem today because it offers a way to put payment credentials onto a smartphone or that ring, fitness band, et cetera, have it related to the original card, but not have that card number placed in any more locations. So if I lose my smartphone, I don't have to replace my card. I can get a new smartphone and put a new token onto that smartphone and my card is still in my hand. Alternatively, if by chance I was unfortunate and lost the card, that token on the phone or the ring or the fitness band can stay in my hands and I can still be transacting while I'm getting my new card because we can map it on the back end 
and keep that transaction, keep that consumer able to transact and continue about their day-to-day lives with as little disruption as possible. That's Melanie Gluck from MasterCard. And that's the CyberWire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.